Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, before he left England in 1787 to captain the first fleet and establish a colony in New South Wales, Captain Arthur Philip famously wrote, quote, There can be no slavery in a free land and consequently no slaves, unquote. This was a bold thing to say. England itself would not abolish slavery for another 20 years. Philip also wrote, quote, Any man who takes the life of a native will be put on his trial as if he had killed one of the garrison, unquote. In other words, even before the first fleet had even left England, on a journey to claim this continent on behalf of the empire, a resolution had been made by no less than the founding governor that the natives were equal in the eyes of God and before the law to the garrison soldiers who had been employed by the government to maintain order. No other Western democracy was established under such liberal principles. 235 years later, those principles and Philip's optimism are under serious threat. A new culture has emerged that exaggerates not only the acrimony between settlers and indigenous people, but also their supposedly immutable differences. It also, this culture also obnoxiously ignores the obviously good things that Australia has achieved in that time. This culture has sadly been enthusiastically embraced by no less than the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who in many ways is Captain Arthur Phillips' successor. A chance to show the very best of our national character, our fundamental optimism, our deep sense of fairness, our instinctive respect and kindness for each other. If not now, when? That's him announcing the beginning of the campaign to introduce the referendum for the voice to parliament. Now, when he says, if not now, what does he mean? Is he saying that Australians are not showing their best character, their instinctive fairness, and kindness already? These are the Australians who cheer on Indigenous success stories with gusto, especially sports stars, and who fund more than $30 billion towards programs to help Indigenous people thrive. Well, if he thinks that lowly of ordinary Australians, you have to wonder what he'd make of this. Early this morning, outside a strip club in Melbourne. You know what I say? You know what I say to you? You know what I say to you? And you? You're a racist Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe and her friends out to celebrate her 50th birthday. A filmed arguing with a group of men. All I want to say to the black brothers there, and anyone that we're fighting, any black man that stands with a White little like that, you can all get too. How the is someone get in Parliament like you? They've been oppressed all that life in this country, and you let 
Well, that's racism for you. 43 years ago, Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew warned that Australia risked becoming the, quote, poor white trash of Asia, unquote. Well, if he were alive today, he'd be able to say to Lydia Thorpe, I told you so. Mind you, Thorpe, for her part, would probably take more offence at being called white than trash. By proposing a referendum about the voice to parliament, Albanese has inspired more division than unity. Last week, a supposed indigenous custodian of Biwa Mountain, one of the Glasshouse Mountains between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, started a campaign to close a hiking track because walking on it was culturally insensitive. Custodians did the same thing to Uluru in 2019, and tourism to the area has since been thoroughly decimated, reducing work opportunities for locals. Even a cartoon of Uluru by Herald Sun cartoonist Mark Knight last year was censoriously deemed to have, quote, breached media guidelines by no less than Parks Australia, a federal government department. Last year, Mount Warning near Byron Bay was closed to hikers for the same reason. The voice will not solve these differences. Instead, it will exacerbate them. The remarkable thing about these stories is how desperate they are to find differences between black and white Australians. How is it offensive to walk a trail that indigenous nomadic people walked for millennia? The answer is it's not. But victim status is highly sought after these days and inventing offences is an easy way for people claiming Indigenous custodianship to acquire it. Such status used to be denied to pale-skinned academics, but these days you don't have to look even remotely Indigenous to claim, as Lydia Thorpe does, to have been repressed all your effing life. For academics who can't even do that, though, the next, be next best thing is to signal moral virtues on the matter. This morning, the Conversation website published a story linking <laughs> the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers with, wait for it, slavery. The two newspapers were once owned by the Fairfax family, which also had a stake in the Colonial Sugar Refining Company which in the late 19th century processed cane, cut down by, quote, effectively slave labour. These were people coerced or forced onto ships from islands in the South Pacific who were then forced to work on sugar farms. Although none were bought or sold, as is the case in genuine slavery, this was still a severely exploitative business and as close to actual slavery as Australia got. The morally vain Guardian newspaper in Britain recently discovered its own links to slavery in the 19th century and has set aside £10 million to spend on what it calls restorative justice. The author of the conversation piece in Australia concludes, quote, Now would be a good time for Australia's oldest newspaper to follow the lead of The Guardian and investigate and acknowledge how its own growth in the 19th and 20th centuries was connected to that slavery. 
Indeed it would. The Herald and The Age habitually harp on about Australia's racist past and present. They could, this is a chance for them to put their money where their mouth is. This is the kind of stuff The Voice leads to. It creates divisions over minor issues and digs up unfortunate aspects of our otherwise constantly positive and optimistic past just so some academic can momentarily feel a sense of moral vanity. Arthur Philip and other pioneers of the Enlightenment who saw equality before the law and under God as a principle on which to build a society would despair at how we are squandering their legacy. Well, one Indigenous academic who doesn't want to squander their legacy and is motivated by more important things than virtue signalling is Anthony Dillon of the Australian Catholic University, and he joins me now. Anthony, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Before we go any further, do you have any ancestors who own slaves? Because if you have, I, I feel uncomfortable. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll sling you $20 after the interview. <laughs> That's good. Uh, okay. All right. We've resolved that one. Good point. I'm glad we. I'm glad we cleared that up, Anthony. But first, my first question to you is: um, What did you make of Senator Lydia Thorpe's performance outside a strip club at three o'clock in the in the in the morning this morning in Melbourne? Look. Okay. A, a couple of things. Um, it's the content of her message and the delivery of her message. All would agree that the delivery was not great given the circumstances she was under and the content, you know, you've oppressed, you know, that word oppressed, you've oppressed me, whatever. Again, nonsense. I respect her right to, you know, have that opinion, but let's talk about it when you're in a better state and debate it out, you know, just who is oppressed and who is the oppressor. Um, so, you know, Lydia, I, I hope you can look at that video and just think, okay, not, not your finest moment. Let's try and do things better from now on. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's a sign, it, surely it's a sign of Australia's goodwill that she's even in the Senate. I mean, how can she abuse that position so, <clears throat> so you know, enthusiastically, for want of a better word, and, and not see that she's doing more harm than good? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a double standard. Would, um, dare I say it, a, a white male politician um, be allowed to stay with that? you know, sort of ongoing behaviour. Uh, again, I just hope that she realises, hey, it was a silly thing to do. It's make or break. She can start doing some good now. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, you're an outspoken critic of the voice to parliament um, because for a variety of reasons. One of them is that it will create different legal statuses for different Australians. But how do you think it will divide us socially? Yeah. Um, look, I, you know, I think on a on a day to day basis, you're still going to get along with the the indi you know indigenous non indigenous people, neighbours, and that will still get along with each other on a day to day basis. So I don't have a, a big issue with that. I am more concerned about those indigenous people who are suffering. How this voice will help them? I don't think it will. If anything, it'll further condemn them. Um, to even more poverty and tragedy because they're left thinking, okay, the voice, this new mechanism, this new voice, this new silver bullet, it will solve every, solve everything. I don't have to do anything. It'll just fix everything. No, it, it won't. We know it has to be done. Jobs, education, 
cleaning up communities, that sort of thing. Uh, that sort of thing we can be doing now too. So we don't have to be waiting, as I said uh, elsewhere, for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, it just doesn't exist, at least not in the process of this thing called the voice. At least I don't think it does because I'm basing my interpretation on, on my understanding of the voice and it's pretty vague. I find it hard to understand exactly what is this thing called the voice. Yeah, let's get back to that in a second, but let's just sort of elaborate on a point you made um, a, a minute ago. Do And you made this point in the Epoch Times last week. Do Are the needs of Indigenous people different to the needs of non-Indigenous people? It's a pretty fundamental question. Yep, no, we all have the same fundamental needs. Um, just like, uh, you know, d diet, we have the same uh, nutritional needs. We may get the vitamins and nutrients and fats and carbs from different sources, but we still need them. And so Indigenous people have the same fundamental needs. Obviously, there are some Indigenous people who are not having those needs met. So the problems they're facing is not because they have different needs, it's because those needs are not being met. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, remoteness, uh, this insistence that Things have to be delivered in a culturally appropriate manner and and many good things today are, um, are at odds with Indigenous culture, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I had uh, uh, Oxford ethicist Professor Nigel Bigar on the show a couple of weeks ago and he was adamant that uh, it's okay to see uh, some cultures as superior to others. He was very careful to point out that no culture is absolutely superior in every way, and nor should it be seen that any culture will always, forever, be more superior than others. Cultures can evolve, and uh, some cultures have, have qualities in some areas and, and others don't. Do you think it is, I mean, culture is the word that keeps coming up in this voice topic. Do you think the affinity with Indigenous culture is what's holding a lot of our most forgotten and forsaken Indigenous people back? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Australia had the, you know, a bit of a an obsession with Aboriginal culture or traditional Aboriginal culture. And what we see today is what... Um, it's, a, you know, a fabricated culture or what Best Price calls a Disneyland culture. And so, we, you know, we make this assumption, oh, it's got to be done the right way. We don't want to violate cultural safety of Indigenous people. When in actual fact, uh, the vast majority of Aboriginal Australians are indistinguishable from non-Aboriginal Australians in the way they conduct their day-to-day -day life. Now, certainly where you have areas where, you know, there's language barriers, different languages and that sort of thing, yes, it's good to have some cultural input there to communicate with people. Uh, but again, you still need to do that based on the assumption that those Aboriginal people have the same fundamental needs as non-Aboriginal people. Indeed. That's how that's how the, the nation was founded, that all, all men are equal and all and women are equal and have mm. similar needs. Um, culture can only be, an, uh, sometimes culture can be an obstacle to that. Now, how do you look back? I, I just want to throw a broad question at you. How, do you see Australian history as generally progressive in race relations? And 
in, the re, in recent years, has that progression stalled? Uh, look, on the ground, I, you know, race relations, uh, I think, are fine. You know, I've been in, I was in Alice Springs recently and, you know, I walk into shops and clubs and you just see Indigenous and non-Indigenous come in and out mingling and that sort of thing. So generally on the ground, it's, it's doing quite well. And most Indigenous people are either partnered up with a non-Indigenous person or are the product of an Indigenous and non-Indigenous union. So, yes, day-to-day I think it's fine, but, again, it's up in the... Um, in the political arena mm. where it gets and academia and, and all that sort of thing where it gets played out in schools, universities, uh, diversity programs in the workplace and that where you get this uh, this presentation that Indigenous are so vastly different from yeah. non-Indigenous people. And, you know, it it's, a, it's very far from reality in my opinion. I mentioned at the start in my introduction that The Voice is the result of a new culture, in my opinion, in Australia that seeks to find these divisions and rewrite our history. I think this culture is quite, um, you know, distinctive and recent. Why do you think this culture has emerged now? Um, I I think what we're seeing now, it's been building up for quite a while, we've become less practical and driven more by emotion. And I, I call on the words of uh, an American psychologist, Jonathan Hyde, who said that the emotional tail wags the rational dog. And ideally, emotions and the logical part of the brain should work together and complement each other. But we do see the uh, the rational dog becoming smaller, well, you know, almost drowned out by this huge emotional tail. And we certainly see that in discussions about this proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament. It's the right thing to do. It's yeah. a generous offer from Indigenous people. Oh, that's a good blah, point. Blah, blah. Tell, tell, what's your opinion of this, this idea that it's everyone says that, everyone from the yes side say, this is a generous offer. I see there's an implicit threat in that. What do you make of this idea <laughs> of a generous offer? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, um, you don't want to be, I think the underlying message is, if you don't accept this thing we're going to call a generous offer, you're a bad person. No one wants to be a bad person. So it gets framed as a generous offer, even though the detail of that hasn't quite been fleshed out. I I want to know exactly what the offer is um, before I can accept it. And, you know, it might sound a little bit funny. Here I am, an Indigenous Australian, talking about accepting that so maybe it's maybe it's wrong of me to say accepting maybe it's you Fred who need to talk about what is the offer accepting it but you know even as you know your brother uh, an indigenous person I still can't see what this offer is that I'm supposed to be handing to you yeah well I think the no case the people on on our side of the debate are losing uh, have lost the early uh, stages of the debate I think because the yes side has cast itself as the compassionate side and we're the ones who want to hold the debate back into some some sort of colonial darkness but that's wrong what we what our solutions or our argument is 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 focused entirely on goodwill between people and the best possible outcomes for the indigenous how do we change that anthony 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's well. First of all, the um, the, the no camp have been called. Well, the, the accusations of racism are going both ways, but I think it's more the yes camp or some members of the yes camp, let's say, who are accusing the no camp of being racist. And we know that uh, racist mud, once it's thrown, it sticks. Um, so, you know, you've got that problem and all the hype, all the emotion. And uh, I read recently Mr Albanese is calling in some celebrities. You know, he's going to give this a bit of a celebrity punch. Um, I mean, well, you've made this point before. Yeah, exactly. What happened to Shaq? Yeah. And well, there was a bunch yeah. of uh, Indigenous sports stars who were uh, um, proposed as, as, as uh, advocates for the Yes case a couple of weeks ago. Conspicuously, none of them have, uh, have thrown their hat in the ring yet. But you made a point quite emphatically in your essay in the book on this topic, um, saying that why would Indigenous, successful Indigenous people advocate for the Yes case? They didn't need the voice to succeed themselves. Absolutely, and nor do the, uh, their, their success. And by the way, you know, those in the Yes camp, the architects, the Indigenous architects, I have a lot of res immense respect for them. I disagree with them, but I take my hat off to them. They have done very well. They've attained good positions. They have worked hard, but they have done it, as you said, uh, without the voice. They've also done it without a treaty. So we need to look at how they've been able to do it. And, you know, short answer, we know that either you're born into good circumstances like I was, or if you're not born into good circumstances, you get a help out of those um, bad circumstances. And in Australia, there's always someone, some individual, some program, who will help anyone, black or white, out of bad circumstances if they're wanting to get out of those circumstances. Well, as you know, Anthony, the, our, all the various departments of, of uh, social services and community services are uh, deliberately skewed to uh, prevent kids, Indigenous kids, in seriously bad situations being rescued. Now, I, I made a point on this show yeah. a couple of weeks ago that the fact that these government departments ignore the plight of indigenous kids when if they were white, they'd be rescued. I said that that, and I stand by it, that is the very definition of institutional racism. What do you think? Racism, yeah. Well, I agree. And Fred, we've got to both be careful. Otherwise, we're going to have some uh, politician asking us to name names and places and offer <laughs> the evidence and the proof and that sort of, sort of thing. Um, yes, you know, we've, we've uh, read these stories before and I've been involved um, in a case where, the, you know, the kid was, you know, it's, it's so common, it could be any one of a thousand, had some Aboriginal ancestry, was in a good home, a good non-Indigenous home, loved, cared for, which is all a kid needs, but they had to be ripped out of that because of the C word, culture. And they were put into an environment where... There was colour, you had the black colour, but the culture was one of dysfunction. Okay, so then again, let me just qualify this. I'm not saying white communities don't have dysfunction. They do. There's many of them that do. But in the white communities, you wouldn't put a kid in a dysfunctional community simply because uh, the people of that community are related to that kid. You would find a good home where the kid is looked after, cared for, loved and nurtured. And so it should be 
with Indigenous people. Uh, I'm not getting rid of culture altogether, but it should be down about number eight, nine or ten, not, not in the top. Indeed. Well, it's been a pretty grim conversation, Anthony. Cheer us up with your... Just finally, just just finally. Yeah, go on. Finally, uh, just finally. I think if we do, if the voice does get up, we will see this whole thing of placing kids with Indigenous carers and that sort of thing. That will become uh, stronger uh, and, you know, more solidified. Yeah, it will. That's right. That will be one of the first things that the voice achieves and it will be utterly negative. So let's just end, try to end on a, on a positive note, Anthony. Do you think the voice will get up? Fred, every bet I've had in the last few years, years I've lost. So uh, the, the, the thing is, you've got people out there who are saying, uh, look, I don't know what the voice is. It's very unclear. I can't see how it's going to work. And then you've got those people who are driven by emotion and say, well, I want to help Aboriginal people and I want to do the right thing. Now, how many are in each camp, I don't know. Uh, but that's at the end of the day, come voting day, that's what's going to be happening. So uh, I really don't know. Well, it's up to us to make sure the no case is uh, well presented. And I'm glad you're on my side, Anthony. We're brothers in this Always. fight, mate. Uh, thanks for your time. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Fred. That's Anthony Dillon, one of the leading voices for the No Case and for Indigenous people. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Damien Curry, who just started last Friday with the excellent Other Side, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course the great Alan Jones by going to adh.tv or downloading our app or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.